You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. You're listening to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us from the United States is Samantha Kutner. Thanks for joining us, Samantha. Thank you for having me. Uh, Samantha, you're a fellow at the Khalifa Isla Institute, and you're also, I guess, the uh, the Caesar Milan of right-wing extremism. I am. I was a they call you the Proud Boys Whisperer, and I realised when I was uh, thinking about that, I don't actually even know what a dog whisperer does. So what does a Proud Boy Whisperer do? Uh, so a proud whisper, it's a tongue-in-cheek reference to the ethnographic field work I've done. I've been studying the Proud Boys since 2017, and that's just kind of my cheeky reference to being able to relate to them in a way that many have not had success with because they tend to be fairly exhausting. So what is it that they're whispering to you, and what do you whisper to them? Well... I'm curious about how they came to find the group, what their red pill moments were, and if their identity has shifted, if if they see themselves differently than they they did before they joined the Proud Boys, who are their new in-groups and out-groups, and what is the reality of being a member? That was really the central question I wanted to ask after Charlottesville when I noticed the Proud Boys were one of the groups backtracking from their involvement and saying that, you know, the members who were there weren't really members and they're a misunderstood fraternal drinking organization. And as a Jewish researcher, I was interested in seeing where they drew the line between ethno-nationalism and uh, civic nationalism, or if they did. And I started reaching out to them through social media platforms before the majority of them were kicked off. And it's just kind of evolved from there. You recently wrote a piece for the uh, the Hague uh, about the allure of hypermasculinity and crypto fascism for men who joined the Proud Boys. Uh, what did you find about what it was that drew them to the group? There is something about adopting an unapologetic stance. What the Proud Boys are are they're largely a reaction to progressive values and policies. They envision a 1950s view of the world where the women were at home. They uh, traditional gender roles are enhanced, and they're very unique as a far right organization because they have the ability to draw the mainstream to the fringes by reframing their extremism as an assertion of their masculinity. Samantha, there's been a lot of debate, discussion about um, the Proud Boys in terms of situating it on a left-right 
perspective, different elements seem to have gone in different directions. You noted that there was um, some stepping back from an engagement with, uh, I guess, an extremist form of right-wing politics following Charlottesville. What's your understanding of the current uh, state of play within the Proud Boys and how diverse a grouping is it? You can think of their position as more of an optics decision than a like repenting and changing their views. They tend to position themselves as, you know, free-spirited libertarians. But when you look at the incidents they have targeted, co-attended, and organized, their extremism is much more clear. Part of the reason I started the incident tracking project was because I was interviewing Proud Boys and gathering uh, news stories as they were coming in. And their perspective of what happened was fundamentally different from how it was being reported. So I just started collecting data and it was really through the the OSINT data and that collection process that I, I came to understand what the group is. The SPLC calls them a generalized hate group. I use the term violent crypto-fascist extremist organization, even though that's a bit of a mouthful, because they do obscure this fascist ethos, like with libertarian ideals. It's kind of like the aesthetics of libertarianism that just obscures the, the fascist agenda. There has been a Proud Boy in the, in the news this week. Uh, Roger Stone has just been pardoned by the president. Uh, what was Roger Stone's connection to the Proud Boys? So Roger Stone submitted his first degree video stating that he was a proud Western chauvinist who refused to apologize for the, uh, creating the modern world. That technically makes him an honorary member, but he played a much more significant role than how they're you know depicting him. He was one of the three approved media figures to speak on the group's behalf. He helped them with their political organizing. And because of his position with both the Proud Boys and under the Trump administration, he really kind of bridged the gap between mainstream politics and, and the fringe right-wing extremism. Proud Boys have, as you've noted, had a significant presence on social media, which is recently... Uh, ended as far as uh, Facebook is concerned. How does how does the group go about recruiting now, especially that um, social media uh, seems to be withdrawing its access? So they are going after the the image events, the the presence at reopen rallies across the country, the pro Trump rallies, and other incidents. They are. They are going out into the public more and trying to co-mingle with more mainstream conservative groups. And uh, most recently in Philadelphia, they, uh, they co-attended a pro-Pence after party. And it was part of the fraternal order of the police. And they, uh, they attempted to, you know, kind of co-attend and the fraternal order of the police there denounced them and their presence. There've been a number of uh, actors in the right-wing space who've been trying to capitalize on the reaction to coronavirus. We've seen things like the Boogaloo, although they take a decidedly anti-police stance. How do the Proud Boys fit in with those sort of groups? So the Proud Boys are uh, kind of the meme smiths of the, of the group. They anticipate the se- like second coming, the, the Civil War, but they don't 
there, there, there are ideas. Let me back up a second because the I just finished some work that where I came to understand the the Baloo movement better, and it's really important to to make some distinctions between you know like what you know what the Boogaloo is. It's not a monolith. There's definitely the the side of the Boogaloo where like their meme game is strong and they're not necessarily actively plotting. And then there's the, the insurgent side that, that we're seeing in the news most frequently and where the proud boys fit in is they, they adopt the aesthetic. They, they adopt the Hawaiian shirts and whatever the newest iteration will be. They are the information launderers that further mainstream the boogaloo. Just in terms of the virus, uh, we've seen in other areas of extremism that uh, conspiracy theories especially seem to be uh, have reduced their inoculation period, so to speak, uh, significantly. People are getting red-pilled very quickly, uh, especially in isolation. In terms of people being red-pilled into uh, the Proud Boys uh brand of things is have you seen any change in how that's working with people being sort of locked away i would say the the red pill is kind of the force multiplier for other conspiratorial content so once you adopt or take the red pill in the proud boy sense meaning you um you open your eyes to the reality of female subjugation by women under feminism uh, once you adopt that worldview, um, many conspiratorial uh, ideas and beliefs become more appealing. And I talk about that more in an upcoming article for uh, Georgetown's Journal of International Affairs, explaining the, the red pill more in depth in the context of this group. But they have embraced many, many conspiratorial ideas. It's, it's not necessarily a defining feature of the group, but it's pretty prominent. Well, we've made reference to uh, Roger Stone. Um, the other, I guess, most significant figure as far as the Proud Boys is concerned is uh, Gavin McInnes. He was in scheduled to uh, tour uh, Australia a couple of years ago, but was uh, seemingly denied entry to the country on the basis of his uh, alleged poor character. Nonetheless, there is a Proud Boys presence in Australia and Canada and elsewhere. What have you discovered about the ways in which the Proud Boys have been able to establish themselves in territories outside the United States? The thing that it, it took me a while to grasp when I was trying to understand the group was what is it that these disparate elements all align on? And many members transcend their their ethnicity and their race by identifying with the West and Western culture and the belief that Western civilization is under decline or must be defended. And the, the Western civilization is like the nice shiny veneer over the uh, great replacement theory beliefs. So essentially you have the perception of black and brown bodies as an existential threat, but not openly stated. They, they don't really say the quiet parts out loud. They will say, we believe in Western chauvinism and patriotism, and thereby they get to launder their views. Because if you say Western is code for white, and you show data as I have shown data <laughs> supporting that, they get to say, look at these gullible social justice warriors. They think that everything is about white supremacy. But I think that the, identifi uh, the identification with the West has those inherent assumptions of uh, black and brown bodies being an existential threat. And because the, the world is seeing an influx of immigration due to natural disasters and despotic leadership and other things, I think the, the perception of brown 
uh, black and brown bodies being an existential threat is is a very prominent theme that strikes fear into many people who are not as informed and are more prone to bias. In addition to the work you've done uh, tracking these groups ethnographically, you've also done some work in the de-radicalization space. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, right after graduating, I worked for a nonprofit organization. And uh, it's pretty funny. I, I started my research in the countering violent extremism field by examining what went wrong with countering violent extremism programs. And I worked for roughly six months with an organization, and it was probably the most valuable learning experience of my life, uh, more of a cautionary tale of what not to do. Or, or <laughs> And I, the work that I did involved a lot of outreach. The, the overarching philosophy of the organization, as I understood it when I was doing the work before I left, was being embedded in hostile spaces and being a positive force that's kind of available as an off-ramp should people be considering leaving. And uh, we did have an instance where I went on I Don't Speak German, and um, based on that podcast, an individual who was seriously considering committing a terrorist act reached out to the organization and they were able to effectively, uh, I wouldn't say de-radicalize because that involves certain cognitive schemas and there's no empirical evidence to say that someone is effectively like de-radicalized or not, at least within that organization. But the fact that that person saw the pod, listened to the podcast, reached out, and then the, um, the allure of actually committing a terrorist attack was reduced. That's the, that's the kind of work that is in that space. I have... The only reason I know I have uh, helped facilitate the disengagement of one proud boy is because he said, I'm leaving and I blame you. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I, I owe that a lot to two things. My approach to the interview process, which borrowed and uh, adopted some uh, Rogerian principles of psychotherapy uh, in regard to active listening and um, not asking them questions as if I knew the answers already because I, I knew going in, I knew nothing about this group and nothing about the reality of being a member. Um, so I think I was able to create a space where many Proud Boys uh, felt safe enough to even speak to me. And then over time, as people saw, um, I was the you know, the counter stereotypical feminist. I, I wasn't the, you know, as they would like the, the angry, crazy cat lady stereotype they had in their minds. Once that uh, perception of me started falling apart, they got a little bit more comfortable. And with the individual who left, I, I would share articles with him on occasion and say, you know, I don't want to tell you how I think about this, but I'm very curious to know your perspective because this individual had an aversion to violence. And he joined the Proud Boys after seeing the Battles of Berkeley on television. And he felt like the far right were the victims in the situation. So he got curious, he joined. And then as time went on in the group, he came more and more into contact with the violence that they were willing to engage in. 
And over time, just speaking to him, not attacking him for his views, listening to his perspective, and, you know, just kind of subtly introducing, you know, what do you think about that? Because a lot of people feel it is this. I'd rather see what you say about this. And um, the first step he took was he stepped down from his council member position. And then the, the following step was several months later when he said, I quit the group. I'm out. In regard to uh, J.L. Van Dyke's behavior, he tried to explain how problematic J.L. Van Dyke was, and they did not want to listen at the time. And that was one of the the defining things. Um, So I, I found it interesting with that individual that his aversion to violence was what pulled him to join the Proud Boys. And it was also the thing that facilitated his disengagement. And the last kind of academic um, distinction I would like to make is something that's uh, in my field uh, fairly accepted and common is um, the difference between disengagement and de-radicalization. I would say in my role, I am best as, as a friendly like ear, someone to connect people to resources if they're in need. Uh, and if I can, and someone is willing helping to facilitate the disengagement of someone, but it's ultimately a decision that they make. De-radicalization is a, is a problematic term in the field because there's not a lot of uh, people like John Horgan and others are working on, um, you know, how to make things more empirically based. But de-radicalization is more related to cognitive schemas. Uh, and it's, it's not as measurable as I have left the organization I am not engaging as frequently with the group. I'm engaging with a different circle of people. Um, I like to think of engagement more than de-radicalization because it focuses on overt behavior. So in in your view, where does the CVE uh, industry go wrong? The CVE industry goes wrong. And um, I've I've done a lot of thinking about this and my own self-reflection. And it's something that's very taboo to talk about is um, often the trauma that leads people not just to extremism, but to studying extremism. And if that trauma is not processed, anyone who creates a countering violent extremism org will become a destructive force in any space they inhabit. The biggest problem I've seen as someone who was asked to be a research consultant for two notable formers who engaged in a very public dispute that led to an incredible amount of harm towards people who needed the help the most. I think that you cannot drive a caring profession by ego. I think that It's a hard enough space to be in as it is, and you have to be ethical in your approach. You cannot treat, you can't treat a former extremist who is leaving and processing their own experience like recruitment fodder, because you're just reiterating some of the far right tactics And the thing that I found most problematic um, to me, which is why I no longer identify as a countering violent extremism researcher, was when uh, Matthew Heimbach left 
you know, he technically left the his former organization. But a few months before he went on uh, one nonprofit organization, sorry if I'm being cryptic, I just don't want to um, open up any of those schisms again. But um, he, Matthew Heimbach was on a podcast where he said that we would, his goal was to pull people over to his side by presenting a watered down version of his views. And then months later, he was kind of the public face of a countering violent extremism organization doing essentially that. And if you have, if you're driven by ethics in this field and you've dealt with your own ego and trauma, you would recognize how, how, how unethical and how harmful ultimately it is to any of the goals of countering violent extremism. When you have a figure like Heimbach presenting himself as a, you know, a peace advocate without atoning for the actions he has engaged in that have harmed communities without any real idea of how he made one jump to the other thing you're really creating a space where people, uh, at least formers who are facing legal repercussions of their work, feel like they can like escape into without doing any of the work. And the third problematic thing about that scenario with Heimbach was that he is spreading watered down versions of his ideology in a space that should focus (laughs) on countering that ideology. And I have many strong opinions about this, but I would like to just kind of celebrate two people who have not been given enough uh, credit, but have really, really done the, like the countering violent extremism, like the work and their own self-reflection and their own journey. The the first is Shannon Martinez. She is a a former neo-Nazi who has become a close friend of mine. Uh, In fact, when I decided to leave the organization, she was one of the first people that was really there for me. And uh, the second is Sivi Vitolo Haddad. Sivi Vitolo Haddad got, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to listen to her, her conversation with Andy No, but if there was ever an example of, uh, of countering violent extremism and counter narratives at their best, it would be this conversation that they had with Andy No. They just very, very cleanly presented evidence to support the fact that Andy No was not a journalist in any way, shape, or form. They did it by presenting their evidence and letting Andy No talk and implicate himself. And most people in this field and activism and everything say, don't ever, ever speak to the far right publicly because you will platform their views. But if anyone was going to have a conversation with Andy, no, it was C.V. Vitolo Haddad. They did something that most people in the space could not accomplish. So CVE at its best is outreach, it's counter narratives, it's genuinely caring about the individual who is making a choice to leave and eliminating their entire social network that they have grown with as a result. 
Um, so CBE is empathetic. It's ethical. It seeks to avoid public conflict. And if you cannot avoid public conflict and you are not ethical and you see former extremists less as individuals and more as recruitment fodder, then you should leave that space. Well, that's all we've got time for on the radio. Thanks very much for joining us, Samantha. But if people want to listen further, we will have some more questions on the podcast, which you can hear at 3cr.org.au slash yeahnapasaran. And if you want to check out more of Samantha Kutner's work, she's on Twitter at uh, ashkanaz89. Thanks for joining us, Samantha. Thank you for having me. Uh, Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you later. In your discussion about the issues that you've experienced with engaging in de-radicalisation and countering violent extremism, what it brings to mind is the, as you've referred to, I guess the tension between adopting a more individualised approach towards those who are um, thinking about leaving these groups and movements and the more, I suppose, uh, therapeutic kinds of approaches that need to be adopted. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have a more what I describe as a properly political response to the broader context. I mean, I I think that those are not always, although ideally they may be complementary, sometimes they're in conflict with one another. How do you approach uh, those sorts of questions? In my research, I always try to balance care and accountability. I can understand why an individual joined and the significance they are given in their membership to an organization, and I can relate to the individual. But if they're engaging in behavior that dehumanize others to the extent that violence against them becomes a legitimate, uh, if not celebrated, option, they have more or less lost their way, and then it goes into a space where you're, you're no longer approaching them empathetically, but you are demanding accountability. And I think that is one of the things that I have tried to do with my incident tracking map to create a short, simple visual for people to see, you know, these are the events they're organizing. These are the events that they are targeting. These are the events that they are co-attending. And regardless of the way that they are framing themselves, Um, because they're very conscious of their manipulations, all of their behaviors, they lead them to, it would make no sense to not see them as a violent extremism organization after looking at the data and seeing that. And they were temporarily classified as an extremist organization in 2018, but that has since been revoked. So a lot of my work in terms of care and accountability is is attempting to show lawmakers the data that leads to making a decision about whether or not to classify the Proud Boys as a violent extremism organization. And and that classification has particular uh, legal implications, I assume, in the United States. Yes. Just on the topic you raised of uh, dehumanization, I think I saw you mention this on Twitter the other day, just the sheer amount of, I guess, propaganda or memes uh, that are being produced currently, uh, especially about uh, car attacks and things at protests, which tend to dehumanise the victims. I suppose in the last few years, there's been this trend, I I think of the clown world sort Mm -hmm. of meme, uh, 
where and the NPC meme even just to, to characterize everyone who is not part of the in group as not even being human. What what do you make of uh, that trend? I will I will share a story from my interview with an Australian proud boy. He was actually the individual that made me uh, seek therapy proactively because of the mm. content that he was sharing with me. I'm just pulling up the 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 thing I wrote for accuracy on this situation. The reason why it took me a long time to publish was. The emotional exhaustion looking at my data made me feel sometimes. And this is one of those instances. So um, uh, I wrote that I was going through Proud Boys data and I was thinking about why I was taking so long to return to analyzing transcripts. Uh, and an Australian Proud Boy to me on July 8th, 2018 said, you get that I'm going to desensitize you slowly over time. Soon you'll have no soul. <laughs> and uh he made it his his purpose to he had a, a terabyte of memes that he wanted oh. to share with me. And um, so it was being blitzed with, I don't know, 20 or 30 images a day. And I here's where I um, didn't realize how deep I was getting into things because I was like, OK, but you've got to put on your researcher hat. So as you're sending them to me, you're going to classify them in terms of severity. So we came up with kind of a Scoville heat index to determine how uh, spicy a meme was essentially from like one being uh, bell pepper to the most extreme content being Carolina Reapers. And by the time we got to the Carolina Reapers, I was still shocked, but I think my initial shock at the content that he was sending was significantly reduced. And I think that a lot of the Proud Boys get curious they join the group and then as a part of group membership are trying to more or less outdo each other. And in that way, they systematically desensitize themselves to the humanity of others. That is how you can see like the disconnect where a proud boy can look at an anti-fascist and no longer see a person who has a different vision for what they want in society, but a target to be attacked or harmed or maimed or in the most extreme scenario killed yeah it's, it's certainly when you when you read some of this stuff you can't help but think that you're looking at you know psychopaths really yes and and that's one of the things that i wanted uh, that i get to touch on at the in the georgetown university article i have a dear friend named uh, kate shaw she's a clinical neuroscientist her way of explaining the allure of the far right uh, in general uh is culturally normative psychopathy. And I think that is fairly fitting for this group because it not only explains why they're engaging in such sadistic behavior and so frequently, but it also explains the presence of multiracial members because in America, there's no unifying cultural identity of whiteness. So when you take that idea away, you are left with this culturally normative psychopathy and aggrieved male entitlement. And this is how many of the Proud Boys get to transcend their, their racial and ethnic boundaries through identifying with this nebulous concept of the West. But the West really is that culturally normative psychopathy and aggrieved male entitlement. In terms of the, I guess, uh, class or socioeconomic background of the Proud Boys, what have you discovered? It's a mix. 
there are many entrepreneurial figures. There are many working class. There are many in construction. There are several comics who are toying with that edge. There are uh, from Proud Boys Girls that I interviewed, uh, hairstylists, uh, political uh, one political strategist. It's a it's a pretty interesting mix. But you know, Fred Perry, uh, the black and yellow Fred Perrys that they have to wear, those are not cheap. So they have to be earning at least enough to be able to afford those shirts and that aesthetic. But there's also a mix of like, because it started as kind of hipsterish because that's in, in Gavin McGinnis's image, you know. So like upper middle class is where it might have started. But as it grew nationally, you see a lot of working class people adopting like boomer sensibilities. <laughs> like, like it's like aspirational richness. Like if we can police the bad behavior of the poor people in our group, we can somehow be more powerful. So there is like one component of that with Proud Boys who are of a lower socioeconomic status, but more or less aspire to be you know, wealthier and more successful. Do you think these boys need something else to be proud of? Or is it their desire to be, let's say, boastful that's really the problem? I think that many of them feel powerless and out of control of their own lives. So they engage in the aggressive performance of masculinity. And some of them can get lost in that role. Where do you see the movement going from here? Based on the ethnographic research I've done and the data that I've collected, I'm seeing two likely scenarios. If Trump is elected, then they get to continue their campaigns of harassment and feel emboldened under his administration to continue the violence and the rallies and the intimidation and the menacing presence and the threatening harassment of media figures so more or less what they're doing, but more pronounced. And if Trump does not win, not to scare anybody, but we are in the field of threat detection, <laughs> all of us, and all of journalism, activists, academics, if Trump does not win, they may be part of the counterinsurgent groups that want to, that want to have their own version of the boogaloo. Well... <laughs> hopefully Trump doesn't win, but hopefully we can avoid that still. I hope so. And I do think that radical transparency and counter narratives are going to be incredibly important during this election year. It's not enough to um, dismiss figures who still are online. They're, they have uh, Recently, Twitter has deplatformed several notable far-right influencers. But for the ones that still remain, I would hope and I can help provide resources for anyone looking to engage in grassroots counter-narrative efforts to reduce the effectiveness of their recruitment narratives. Thanks very much for joining us. Do you have any um, final thoughts you wanted to add? I think that whatever differences activists and academics may have in terms of praxis, it would be very important for all of us to see that we are more or less aligned in the same fight. And it's my hope that all the disparate activist collectives and communities can resolve whatever lingering differences remain, because ultimately it's, it's the work that counts. And the better that we can unify, the more effective we'll be in reducing the, the spread of violent extremist rhetoric, 
reducing the radicalization of many of our country members, the more we can build a society that's that's less miserable for people overall. Um, because I really feel like, as someone who's studied extremism for several years now, I really feel like the way to reduce terrorism overall is to to make society less insufferable for people. And we're kind of reacting to all the threats that are around us and may not have time to focus on the, the deeper, the more preventative aspects. But I do hope that, that all of us can resolve our differences in order to work together and be more effective in what we do.
Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.